Good evening, everybody, and welcome to the Church of Grace. My name is Patrick Hayes. Today is Friday, December 9th, and we are in the book of Obadiah, and we are in part two. So we went over part one last week, which was kind of an introduction to a new book. Uh, the whole book is one chapter. It's only 21 verses. So if you don't enjoy this book, uh, you only have to hold your nose for a couple of nights, and we're going to be through it. Uh, probably before the new year. I think we'll just have one more night after tonight. So um, I got an announcement, and that is we are going to have a Hanukkah party on Friday, December 23rd. It is going to be here. It's going to be at 6 p.m., not 6.30. And we are doing um, a Mexican potluck. So we get like, I don't know, like 10 dozen tamales from Maria's down on Main and 7th. And then we ask everyone to potluck in some kind of Mexican dish. And uh, if you have any candles, bring them. We'll have a candlelight storytelling of the Hanukkah story. And uh, we'll have just a little Bible study and uh, just eat a bunch of food. So that'll be Friday, December 23rd here. We're going to start 30 minutes early. So we'll start at 6 instead of 6.30. So uh, put that on your calendar. Okay. So other than that, let's have a word of prayer. And we're going to jump right into the book of Obadiah. Uh, Lord, we, uh, we love you, and we are grateful that we can get together here and study the Bible. We're grateful, Lord, that you hear our prayers. You are uh, awesome and powerful. You are kind and merciful. You are our creator and our savior. And uh, Lord, we are at best sinners, and we are grateful, Lord, that you sent your son to die for our sins. We're grateful, Lord, that uh, you love us anyhow. And Lord, we uh, just want to ask for uh, your help tonight. We want to ask that you would please give us a soft heart, help us to hear what you want us to learn uh, as we study the Bible together this evening. God, please speak through me. Um, give me the words to say. And Lord, thank you that we, we still live in a country where we have the freedom to get together and read the Bible and study the Bible. And um, you know we can, uh, we can do this on a Friday night. Thank you for bringing so many folks out. Uh, to come together to study the Bible. Lord, there's a million things we could all do on a Friday night, a uh, million reasons not to get together and study the Bible, and we're just grateful that you you bring folks out. Uh, so please just have your hand of blessing upon all we do and say tonight. We love you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. <clears throat> all right, so a um, couple things. We have some visitors. Welcome. Um, uh, and... Um, as we go through the night, uh, it's all, uh, you know, raise your hand, ask a question at any time. I'm going to ask everyone a lot of questions. So, you know, just uh, just jump on. These are all the verses we're going to be going over through the evening. So you can um, take a look at those. Or if you want to uh, save your place in the Bible, you know, right now, these are all the places we're going to get to. And then other than that, uh, we're in Obadiah part two. Okay, so uh, by way of review, uh, Obadiah is a prophet to who? We already forgot, huh? Very good. The Edomites. Now, even though <clears throat> the Edomites aren't kind of the most notable name of a group in the Bible, more prophecies are spoken against the Edomites than any other group, more than the Romans, the Babylonians, the Assyrians, more than anybody. Now, <clears throat> who are the three prophets to the Gentiles? In the Bible, there are three prophets where the prophecies are not written to the nation of Israel. They are written to the Gentiles. So there's three books. Who can tell me one of them? Washington? It is not Nehemiah. Strike one. It is not Daniel, although Daniel was written while Daniel was in a pagan land. And what you're thinking of, Joe, is that one chapter of Daniel is written by a Gentile. And it's the only chapter in the entire Bible written by a Gentile. And that's found in, in the book of Daniel. Washington, you want to guess again? 
Nahum, very good. Okay, Nahum is one for extra credit. Who can me who Nahum was writing the prophecy to? Someone other than Washington. Or you can tell me another one of the prophets. Okay, very good. To the Assyrians. Okay, who else can give me a, a prophet to the Gentiles? There are three in the Old Testament. We got one of them. Obadiah. Man, I was waiting for that. Yes. Obadiah. Very good. Okay. Uh, and who is Obadiah written to? Edomites. Very good. And then the last one. Very good. Jonah. J-O-N-A-H? J-O-N-A-H. And who is Jonah written to? It was the Assyrians, and specifically uh, to the capital city of Assyria. And what's the capital city of Assyria? Very good. Nineveh. Nineveh. I have no idea if that's spelled correctly. Okay. So, next question. Where do the Edomites come from? Mac? You raised your hand prematurely, didn't you? Very good, Esau. So remember, the story of Israel and the Edomites is the story of Jacob and Esau. They hate each other. They're at odds with one another. They're related, but they're not happy that they're related. The picture of Jacob and Esau is the picture of the Israelites and the Edomites throughout the whole Bible. Okay, very good. So uh, let's see. Mm-hmm. <laughs> So God is going to punish Edom for their sins. That's what the book of Obadiah is about. God is right is telling Obadiah what he's supposed to write to the Edomites. Uh, they have been the enemy of Israel uh, all the way back to the book of Genesis. When Jacob and Esau were first born, they, they really didn't get along. And they are still enemies of the nation of Israel today. Now, next question. And this is a little bit loose. Today, who are the Edomites? Nope. Louis? They are. In a general sense, they are Arabs. So they come from, remember, we have three lines that come from Abraham. Abraham and Sarah had uh, Isaac. Then Abraham with Sarah's handmaid, Hagar, had Ishmael, and he is the father of many nations. God told uh, Ishmael that. And then after Sarah died, Abraham remarried. Who did he remarry? Mm-hmm. I know. That's okay. Her name appears four times in the Bible. It's not a main character, so I don't expect you to remember. Washington? Very good. Keturah. And Keturah had, again, many children, and we find out through history that they are make up the nations of Saudi Arabia and make up the nation of the Bedouins. And then um, Esau ends up marrying Ishmael's son's sister. So Esau and the Edomites marry into uh, the family of Ishmael and the family of Keturah, and they make up in the region uh, the Arab nations. What country in the Middle East stands apart from the Arab nations? You have the you have Israel. That's a good answer, not the one I was looking for, but you do. So you have you have Saudi Arabia, you have Iraq, you have Afghanistan. You have, okay, you have the United Arab Emirates. We have lots of countries over there, all Arab by language, by culture, by religion. Okay, what's the one nation that stands out? Nope, Jordan is Arab. Nope. They, how about that? Here's a hint. They speak a different language. They don't speak Arabic. They speak Farsi, which is the Persians. And who are the modern-day Persians? Iran. Okay, and in the Bible, we find the nation of Iran is called Elam. Okay, so we read about them many times. If you ever meet an Iranian, do not 
say that they are an Arab. They do not like that. They are very much not. They speak a different language. I'm from a totally different culture, but their nation is nestled in, surrounded by <clears throat> other Arab nations. Okay, so along these lines, um, today, 21% of the nation of Israel is Arab, and 83% of them are Muslims. And Arabs living in Israel today have equal voting rights with the nation of Israel. The nation of Israel has given any Arab who comes and lives in uh, the nation of Israel uh, equal rights with any Israeli national. Uh, Arabs are allowed to own land in Israel. And Israel has a standing order that all Israeli citizens, Israeli-born citizens, have to serve in the IDF, the Israeli Defense Force. That law is given exception for any Arab in Israel because the nation of Israel did not want to force any Arabs to fight against some of their relatives in any conflict. So they don't have to. But there are many Arabs that live in Israel who volunteer for the IDF and, and serve in it. Um, Arabs are proportionately represented in the Knesset. And is they, Israeli Arabs have the highest life expectancy in the Muslim world. Um, Arabs in Israel have voting rights, making them one of the only places in the entire Middle East where women can vote. On the other hand... Who is not allowed to step foot in Saudi Arabia? Mac? Yep. Jews today are not allowed to step foot in the nation of Saudi Arabia. If you have a stamp in your passport from Israel, the Saudi Arabian government will stop you at customs, and more often than not, they will turn you away. They will not let you out of the country. If you work in the oil and gas industry and you go over there, what are you not allowed to bring with you? Not allowed to bring a Bible. Okay, it is a very stark contrast and a very big difference. And this difference goes all the way back to the book of Genesis and to Jacob and Esau. Carries on to today. Okay, so let's pick up in verse 3. As a matter of fact, let's read the first nine verses, and then we got through the first three, so we'll pick up in verse 3 or 4. But let's start by just reading the first uh, nine verses. Okay, Obadiah. I'd like to say chapter one, but it's the only chapter. The vision of Obadiah, thus saith the Lord God concerning Edom. We have heard a rumor from the Lord, and an ambassador is sent among the heathen. Arise ye, and let us rise up against her in battle. Behold, I have made thee small among the heathen. Thou art greatly despised. The pride of thine heart hath deceived thee, thou that dwellest in the clefts of the rock whose habitation is high, that saith in his heart, who shall bring me down to the ground? Though thou exalt thyself as the eagle, and thou, and though thou set thy nest among the stars, thence will I bring thee down, saith the Lord. If thieves came to thee, if robbers by night, how art thou cut off? Would they not have stolen till they had enough? If the grape gatherers came to thee, would they not leave some grapes? How are the things of Esau searched out? How are his hidden things sought up? All the men of thy confederacy have brought thee even to the border. The men that were at peace with thee have deceived thee and prevailed against thee. They that eat thy bread have laid a wound under thee. There is none understanding in him. Shall I not in that day, saith the Lord, even destroy the wise men out of Edom? and understanding out of the mount of Esau. And thy mighty men, O Teman, shall be dismayed to the end that every one of the mount of Esau may be cut off by slaughter. All right, so <clears throat> the book reads like a lot of prophecies do in that it's not always that easy to understand what's going on until you dig in a little bit. So... In verse number three, we'll pick it up there, says, 
thou that dwellest in the clefts of the rock whose habitation is high. So the Edomites dwelt in the clefts of the rock. So if you looked up uh, Petra Jordan and you looked at any of the pictures there, you will see some of the most amazing pictures of where the Edomites literally lived inside of mountains. They carved uh, tombs. They carved their homes. They carved uh, defenses. There are uh, um, amphitheaters. They are into the rock. So they lived high up. So they had a very defensible position. Not only that, they carved aqueducts in the rocks to bring water in. So they had uh, fresh water from the, from the mountain uh, runoff. So they didn't have to go and gather water. So when God is talking about the Edomites being high up and he was going to bring them low, it is both literal and figurative. They, they, so if, and I have not been to Jordan, uh, but if you go to Petra to see some of these, um, just breathtaking, you know, uh, um, wonders of the world to get there. You have to hike three quarters of a mile through a Canyon. That's 10 feet wide. And the walls of this Canyon are over 250 feet tall on both sides, just sheer straight up. So the Edomites were very proud of their accomplishments. And the Bible talks about that in verse three, God talks about the pride of thy heart. That's the big sin of theirs. They thought that their place of living was very highly defensible. And it was when people were walking, you could only, and this is what I've read and videos that I've watched. Again, I have not been to Jordan. You could only get one horse through at a time. You couldn't squeeze two horses next to each other. So if anyone was coming to attack, they literally were up on the top just dropping rocks on them. So they had a very uh, defensible position, and they were very proud of the home that they made for themselves uh, up, in the, up in the mountains. So, uh, and by the way, that, just to give you an idea, if you're curious, look up the SEEK, S-I-Q, uh, the Seek Corridor or the Seek Canyon, that is the narrow uh, causeway that you have to go through uh, there, or the narrow canyon that you have to go to. Yeah, that's it. Yeah. Yeah, it's amazing, isn't it? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Oh, okay. Great. Okay, so in verse 4, let's look at verse 4. God says that he's going to bring them down. And again, he's talking both figuratively and literally. So the Edomites were ultimately chased out of their home and they had to abandon the place that they were. Where did they end up? Hmm. So they, they had pressure put on them from the southeast. Okay, how about this? Well, we're going to get there. Let me let me let me circle back to that. <clears throat> let me circle back to that where where they're going to where they're going to live. But they were chased out of where they lived and they were also uh they were beaten down. They were as the Bible ta- calls it, you know, brought low. So <clears throat> God is telling them that he is not only going to bring them down from their dwelling place, which which was up high in the mountains, but also they're going to be brought down in stature. Okay, in verse 4, the Edomites exalted themselves like a what? It's in verse 4. An eagle. Okay. So are you ready for this? The eagle has been the traditional insignia 
of nations that were enemies of Israel? What nations that were an enemy of Israel have the eagle as their insignia? Absolutely. Okay. Nazi Germany, eagle. Who else? Ooh, okay. Now, we're not enemies of Israel. Okay, not yet. Wash, who's another one? So <clears throat> it, would be, it would be like a national symbol of the country. Very good. Russia. Okay, who else? No. You got to stop calling them a country. They're not a country. <laughs> They're a group that hates Israel, that's for sure. Washington? <clears throat> nope. Okay, there is also um uh there is a I'll just write it up here. Rome. Look at any movie you see about Roman armies. What did they bear on a big stick at the front of the military when they marched anywhere? It was an eagle. And under it, it said in Latin, the Senate and the people of Rome. And they said that wherever they marched was Roman soil and Roman citizens had rights there. Yep. <clears throat> Look that one up. Okay. There's a couple others, but the, but the last one is the United States of America. Now we are not enemies of Israel. We are their biggest ally. However, my greatest concern is that America one day will turn from Israel and not be their ally. And we're going to see what the Bible has to say about that. When anyone turns against Israel, oh yeah, that's bad news. Nations that were wicked and evil against Israel, they got, they got a sharp stick. It is all the way back in Genesis chapter 12. It's one of the first times God spoke to Abraham when he called him out, he said, you will be a blessing to the world, and whoever blesses you, I will bless them. And whoever curses you, I will curse them. And when you go through history, you find this to be true to an extent that is scary. Okay, remember, <clears throat> the Babylonians were wicked and evil to Israel. Where are the Babylonians today? Yeah, they're gone. Okay, now, who took over the Babylonians? The Persians did. Okay, so the Persians came in and they invaded and they surrounded Babylon. And in one of the greatest military uh, sieges in the history of the world, the Persians come in and they take over the strongest city in the world, Babylon. And then... What does Persia do with the slaves that Babylon had, the nation of Israel? They set them free. But they didn't only just set them free. They gave them everything. Okay, remember Nehemiah, the cupbearer, goes to the king, and he's sad, and the king says, what's wrong? And he says, well, my, my hometown is in ruins, and the temple is in shambles, and, and, and it's just so upsetting. And Cyrus, king of Persia says, I'm giving you letters. You can go home and you can rebuild your city. Okay, And not only that, I'm giving you all the timber you need and all the stone you need, and I'm giving you garrisons to make sure when you march there, you're going to be safe. So Persia, the nation of, which was Elam, which is present-day Iran, where are they? They're still around because they blessed Israel. When the Greeks came through, most every single nation, when they would come through, they would tear down every single temple in every single city. They would destroy every church. They would crush everything. 
and they would make everybody worship their God. What was Alexander the Great's policy? Yep. When he took over the world, he said, I do not know which one is the true God. So we will respect them all. He didn't touch anything in the nation of Israel. And where's Greek today? Or sorry, where's Greece today? They still exist. Go through all of Israel's history and you can see those that cursed Israel are destroyed. And those that bless Israel are blessed again and again and again. Okay. Let's keep moving. Yeah. So anyway, I don't like the idea that we have an eagle because I'm concerned. Is that going to be prophetic? Are we going to turn one day? Are we going to, you know, turn off the ally, you know? Yeah. Okay. Let's look at verse five. Let's try to get through some of this. So in verse five, Uh, It talks about the thieves that are going to come in and steal, and they're going to steal from Edom until they've had enough. And it talks about because Edom is cut off. So they have no support from any other nations when they are finally brought low and when they're attacked. Uh, But it also talks about in verse five, how the grape gatherers came to thee. would they not leave some grapes? It gives a hint that they're not going to be totally destroyed. They're going to be beaten up and they're going to be brought low, but they're not going to be totally wiped out. Then in verse uh, six, it talks about the substance of Esau is searched out. Uh, It is found and it is taken. And uh, this happens to uh, the Edomites. Uh, All of their tombs where they had all their wealth, they are raided and uh, everything is stolen of theirs. Now, in verse seven, it talks about all the men of thy confederacy have brought thee even to the border. The men that were at peace with thee have deceived thee. Edom had alliances with all their neighbors. So that nation nation that they were friendly with and those alliances failed them the allies of the edomites turned on them now do you know that the quran describes allah as the greatest of deceivers He is not to be trusted. Okay, Allah is described as being capricious. And from all the way back to this time till today, alliances with Arab countries cannot be counted on. Louis, you were over in Iraq. Okay you had Iraqi soldiers that were allies of America and Saudi Arabian soldiers that were allies of America, right? How much? Okay, so they changed with the wind. They could be bought and sold. If a a better deal came along, you got it. They're gone. Yep. So it's a different mindset. And again, it goes all the way back to Jacob and Esau. okay let's look at verse eight god says that they are going to destroy the wise men out of edom the edomites were very proud of the fact that they were considered very wise and that they had these extremely wise people that lived there and They gave counsel to many different other countries, and they really liked this about themselves. The funny thing is, all of their wise men, they did not see the coming of their own destruction. Now, in verse 9, it continues with this idea of the wisdom of the men in Edom. It says, And thy mighty men, O Teman, shall be dismayed. Okay, so... Teman. Does that mean anything to anybody? 
It's okay if it doesn't. It's obscure. Okay, so Teeman was a land. Who lived in Teeman? Nope. <laughs> so, yes, they did live in Teeman. Okay, but Temanites lived in Teeman. Okay. Nazarites lived in Nazareth. Right. Okay. Now, this, I'm going somewhere with this. Go to, where are we on here? Oh, here we go. Go to Job. We're on the first one. Go to Job chapter 2, verse 11. So quick review of the story of Job. Job was an upright guy, walked with the Lord, loved God. Seems like God loved him. And then Job had the worst day of his life, the worst day of anyone's life. Okay, you read Job chapter one. You, if you ever have a bad day and you're not doing well, you need to pick me up. Just read Job chapter one and think to yourself, boy, I'm sure glad I'm not this poor guy. Okay, so Job loses all of his camels. They're stolen. And then while the servant that's explaining to Job is saying, hey, all your camels are stolen, another guy shows up and he says, hey, all your sheep, uh, fire came down from heaven and uh, just burned them alive and they're dead. And while that guy's talking, another servant shows up and he's like, yeah, all your cattle have been stolen as well. And then another guy shows up and he gives him the, the final blow and he says, all of your children have died. Okay, Job starts out with a horrible story. Okay. So then in Job chapter 2, verse 11, we read, now when Job's three friends heard of all this evil that was come upon him, they came every one from his uh, own place. Eliphaz, Eliaphaz, I don't know how you pronounce it, the Temanite, and Bildad the Shuhite, and Zophar the Namathite, for they had made an appointment together to come to mourn with him and to comfort him. So what did they come to do? To comfort him. Did his three friends comfort him? No. No, they didn't. They were terrible friends. Job said himself uh, that they were all miserable comforters. Uh, and what did they do? They blamed Job for all of his misfortune. They're like, well, the reason those sheep got toasted from fire from heaven is because you're a terrible person. And the reason your camels were stolen is because you're a sinner and God hates you. And the reason all your kids died is because you deserve it. They were horrible friends. Okay. So that's, that's the story of Job. Now, Eliaphaz was a Temanite. So he's supposed to be one of these super wise guys. The wisdom of Eliphaz, the Temanite, was worldly wisdom. It was not godly wisdom. That's why he gave bad advice. That's why he was a terrible comforter, because he was telling Job how he felt about the situation. Now, going to look at a couple verses here. Um, these three, uh, starting in 1 Corinthians 3.19. You can just write these down and look them up later. I'm going to read through a few of these. And this has to do, this is, this is kind of my goal, giving us all something to take from tonight other than a story or a uh, Bible study about a prophet whose name we can't pronounce. Okay, in 1 Corinthians 3.19, we read about wisdom and godly wisdom. God has a lot to say about this, and we really have some things that, that can benefit us here. God says, for the wisdom of this world is foolishness with God. For it is written, he taketh the wise in their own craftiness. God says, that wisdom of this world is foolishness. Now, the reason a Christian can be looked at with some disdain or mock is because if you believe the Bible and you believe God wrote this book and you believe what it says, you are not going to get in with a lot of ideas that are currently popular in the world. 
And it's not always easy to stand there, but the reason is because the wisdom of the world is looked at as foolishness to God. God says, that stuff is nonsense. You guys are way off. Our pursuit of wisdom and knowledge should start in the Bible. The Bible doesn't have a lot of subject matter. The Bible is not going to teach you Pythagorean theorem. The Bible doesn't have the laws of thermodynamics explained in it. There's a lot of stuff we're not going to learn in the Bible. But understand, if you want instructions on how to live a successful life and have a successful family, it's found in here. This is where we start. These are our instructions. Proverbs 9.10 says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the holy is understanding. And in Proverbs 1.7, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, but fools despise wisdom and instruction. So the question is, do you want knowledge? Do you want wisdom? Then to learn what God says. We need to learn what God thinks. That's where we are going to get wisdom. It is not, people are not coming up with all these great ideas apart from what God has laid down. This is the place where we're supposed to go if we want a successful life. Do you know how crazy that last statement that I just made is nowadays? You know how you are looked at by most of the world if you say, <clears throat> I try to live my life based on a book that was written over the course of thousands of years by 40 plus different authors, most of which who never met each other, who spoke various languages and lived in different countries. And I believe that this book was written by God. It has a supernatural origin. It's not a book about God. This book was written by God. And that's why I take time and I read it. I take time and I study it. And I try to live my life by its principles. Now, do the principles in the Bible make sense? It's an honest question. I would say sometimes. Let me ask you this. <clears throat> if I were to tell you that working six days and taking one day off, you're going to be more effective than if you work seven days. Does that make sense? Well, mathematically, it doesn't make sense. If we work seven, eight-hour days, you'd think we'd get more done than if we worked six of them, right? That's not the way God set it up. What about a really big leap? What if I told you that farming your land for six years and giving the land one year of rest would actually yield more produce than if you farmed for seven straight years? Anyone believe that one? It's what the Bible says. That is insanity for the, for the agricultural industry. Okay, what about the idea that if I said, out of every $100, you keep 90 of them and you give 10 away, and the 90 will go further than if you kept all 100? Does that make sense? Yeah, it doesn't. It does not make sense. That is not logical. It doesn't make any sense. But does it work? You ask anybody that faithfully tithes and they will say it works i'm never going to stop you ask anyone okay that takes the day off and says nope i got one day where it's separate and i'm just i'm not working i'm okay this is what i'm doing you ask anyone that's done that for for a period of time and they're going to say man that works i don't know why it works but it works and i'm not changing it but if you draw it out on paper you cannot convince people of it because it doesn't make sense. But I can bring you to as many successful families that have wonderful children and have a lifestyle that you would love your family to look like, 
and I can show you them. And they do their best to live by the principles found in this book. All it poorly and imperfectly all the time. Again and again and again, I've seen it enough and I've tried it enough to where I'm not trying anything else. I'm already sold. I'm all in. Okay. So I am convinced that this book is written by God. Do you know how to tell if a Christian believes that God wrote this book? They read it. Okay, think, think of this. You're going to stand on one of two sides of this line, okay? This book, the God that created the sun, the moon, the stars, the planets, all life, created all scientific laws, keeps this world in balance, that God wrote a book. Or you're going to say, I don't think he did. Now, on this side of the line, you also have, you know what? I, I think he did write it. But, Patrick, it's been copied. It's been copied and copied and copied over thousands of years. And it's been translated from one language to the next to the next. So, you can't really trust it anymore. God wrote the book, and all I got to do is believe it, or I have a million different reasons not to believe that that's the book from God and that I can just trust it. Now, the God that wrote the book is the same God that created the sun, the moon, the stars, and all the planets. Do we agree? That's what the book says. Whether you believe it or not, that's what the book says. Could that God get exactly what he wanted written down in a book if he wanted to? Of course he could. Question is, did he? And if God did that, could God have scribes copy that book again and again and again over thousands and thousands of years and get exactly what he wanted in it? Of course he could. Question is, did he? And then if God needed to translate that book from Hebrew into Greek, you know, about three centuries prior to Christ, it's called the Septuagint, where the entire Old Testament was translated into the Greek language 300 years before Christ. Could God get exactly what he wanted in that book? Of course he could. The question is, did he? And then could God get it in English for us so that we have his book and we just got to read it? Again, of course he could. You have to make the decision, did he do it or not? And if you believe he didn't, it makes sense to me why someone wouldn't read it and study it. But if God wrote this book, then can we all agree that this is the most important item on earth? This is the God book. I've read lots of good books. But this is the God book. Don't you think we should read it at least once before we get to heaven? Wouldn't you be embarrassed if you got to heaven and you met Obadiah? And you're like, oh, nice to meet you. What'd you do on earth? He's like, I wrote a book of the Bible, dude. What did you do? Oh, I never got that far. Yeah, I played a lot of Fortnite and, you know, <laughs> yeah, yeah had a lot of Instagram followers and, you know, which you get, there, there's nothing wrong with Fortnite. I'm just, you know, you, you get the joke. Okay. Let's move on. Let's move on. Let's read. <clears throat> well, I said all that to say this, the wisdom of the Edomites was trash because it was worldly wisdom. It's what they came up with. And if you read through Job, there's two chapters where Eliaphaz, the Temanite, talks to Job and answers his questions. And what he says to Job is nonsense. Okay, let's read. We got 14 minutes. Let's read verses 10 through 14. And then we'll be done. 
Okay, I'm going to turn back to Obadiah right before Jonah. Verse 10, for thy violence against thy brother Jacob, shame shall cover thee, and thou shalt be cut off forever. In the day that thou stoodest on the other side, and that in the day that the strangers carried away captive his forces and foreigners entered into his gates and cast lots upon Jerusalem, even thou wast as one of them. But thou shouldest not have looked on the day of thy brother in the, in the day that he became a stranger. Neither shouldest thou have rejoiced over the children of Judah in the day of their destruction. Neither shouldest thou have spoken proudly in the day of distress. Thou shouldest not have entered into the gate of my people in the day of their calamity. Yea, thou shouldest not have looked on their affliction in the day of their calamity, nor have laid hands on their substance in the day of their calamity. Neither shouldest thou have stood in the crossway to cut off those of his that did escape. Neither shouldest thou have delivered up those of his that did remain in the day of distress. Okay, so we're going to go over some history in those four verses. So... We don't have a lot in the way of notes, so we're going to power through this. All right, so in verse 10, uh, the, the Edomites met Israel with violence. Now, can anyone tell me one of two instances where this happened in the Old Testament prior to the prophets? Again, the Edomites are not, even though they're main characters in the Bible, they don't have a lot of time. They're not a lead role. Okay, there's, there's two times. So write these down, look them up later. You got Numbers chapter 20, verses 14 and 21, and you have 2 Chronicles chapter 28. So in Numbers chapter 20, verses 14 to 21, Moses leads the Israelites out of Egypt. Okay, they cross the Red Sea. Okay, they're on their way to Canaan land. They're ready to go. And they come up to the border of the Edomites. And they say, can we cross through your land? And they say, no. And they say, if we cross through your land, we will stick to the highways. We won't even eat anything that we find on the ground. And they say no. And they say, we will stick to the highways. We will eat no food. We won't even drink water on your land. And he says no. And he gathers an army and he stands off against Israel. The Edomites did that. When the Israelites were at their lowest point, they can't, well, I mean, they were probably on a little bit of a high. They just defeated the most powerful army in the world, right? Going through the Red Sea and the waves crash in and crush Pharaoh and all the chariots. But they didn't have anything. And they were wandering in the desert and they're trying to get to the Canaan land. So Moses humbly turns around and they go the long way around Edom to get into Canaan land. And then in Second Chronicles, what we find is when uh, Moab is... <sighs> It wasn't Moab. I don't remember who was attacking them. Uh, Perez and I, I don't remember. There are two groups that were attacking the Israelites in Second Chronicles 28, and the Edomites joined forces with them. They're like, oh, look, Israel's under attack. Let's join in here and start, okay, beating these guys up. So Edom, when they had the opportunity, they attacked Israel. When they had the opportunity, they were evil and wicked toward Israel. They were distant cousins of Israel, but they did not like each other. So they took advantage of Israel's misfortune and they attacked them. They were the enemy of Israel at every opportunity. Now in verse 11, the Edomites did not prevent the destruction of Jerusalem. And God holds this against the Edomites. He said, Jerusalem was under attack. They were under siege by the Babylonians, and you did nothing. Now, this brings us to Luke chapter 10, verses 30 through 32. This is the parable of the Good Samaritan. Now, let's take a look at this. I'm not going to give you too much of the backstory, but Jesus is trying to explain to a young man who's struggling to obey the command to love your neighbor. He's like, oh, well, who's my neighbor? And Jesus goes into this story and he says, <clears throat> starting in verse 30, uh, a certain man went down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell among thieves, which stripped him of his raiment, wounded him and departed, leaving him half dead. So th these thieves really mess this guy up and he's half dead in the street and they leave him. 
Okay, so verse 31, and by chance there came down a certain priest that way, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So this guy is walking down the street, and he sees this guy that's beaten up and stripped and and robbed and half dead, and what does he do? Yep, just walks to the other side of the street and walks on by and just ignores him, okay? Could you imagine seeing that? I mean, that's horrible. Then a Levite comes by. What does he do? The exact same thing. He passes by in verse 32, and likewise, a Levite, when he was at that place, came and looked on him and passed by the other side. The priest and the Levite were condemned by Jesus because they did nothing. They had a chance to help and do good to someone who is in a bad way, and they did not. In that parable, do you know who Jesus does not condemn? The Samaritan was the good guy. He's the hero, and that's in verse 33, and I didn't get there. Do you know who he does not condemn? The thieves who rob them and strip them and leave them half dead and beat them half to death. They're like, well, they're thieves. That's what thieves do. But the priest and the Levite, they knew better. They were supposed to help. They saw someone who was in trouble. They knew what they were supposed to do, and they didn't do it. Thieves, well, yeah, what do you expect from a thief? They're going to beat you up and leave you half dead and take all your stuff. That's what you get from thieves. So, by watching and doing nothing, you are sharing in the crime. Do you know that that's the standard we're held to? Yeah, it's a high bar. Okay, boys, listen up. Okay. One of your jobs as a man is that when you hear a woman in distress, you stop what you're doing and you run to her. Do you understand? That's your job. When there's a woman in distress and you hear that, you stop what you're doing and you run in that direction. You help. Okay? You do the opposite of what everyone else does. Most people, they hear someone scream, they run away. Your job as a Christian, and let's face it, as a man in general, is to be a fireman. You run into the burning building when everyone else runs out. You got it? That's your job. That's what I expect from you. Now, that won't always work out well or be easy. Okay, but let me tell you, you hear a woman in distress, you run to her. Okay? You are there to help. That's your job. That's what I expect. Okay? You get punched out and lose some teeth for trying to help. I'll get you a good dentist. We'll get them put back in. Okay? But don't you ever come and tell me that you heard a woman in distress and you ran the other way. Okay, that is not what we do. That is our bar set by God. Okay. Edom is told that they will be cut off forever. So now remember in Genesis chapter 12, verses two and three, what God told Abraham, and I will make of thee a great nation, and I will bless thee and make thy name great, and thou shalt be a blessing, and I will bless them that bless thee, and curse him that curseth thee. And in thee shall all families of the earth be blessed. Do you know what Israel just did? Last three months, do you know what Israel just did? Yeah, they have elections. They have elections like every four months. Yeah, they're... Israel just cured blindness. Did you know that? Yeah. So... Dealing with people who lose their eyesight, whether they're born that way or they lose it at some point during their life, greater than nine out of 10 people lose it for the same reason. Israel fixed that problem. Yep. They are now making the procedure, they're teaching it to the world for optometrists and and, um, obstetricians, ophthalmologists, okay, to be able to perform the surgery and bring sight to greater than uh, nine out of every 10 blind people on earth. 
Yeah. Okay. When you look at the achievements of Israel, when God told Abraham, by your family, the whole world will be blessed. You have no idea all the different ways that the whole world has been blessed. Okay, so what did eat ready? This is the big one. Verse 12. Okay, and this is the this is the exciting one. All this is this is history here. What did Edom do when Israel was attacked by the Babylonians? Okay. So when was the Babylonian siege? I think it was 586 BC. Okay, and it was when the Babylonians surrounded Jerusalem. And they destroyed the temple, they destroyed the wall, they destroyed the city, they took all of the precious implements that they used in the temple for the priestly service, Uh, they took all the Jews captive and brought them to Babylon, Uh, they killed a lot of them. It was one of the greatest decimating events in the history of Israel. And Edom who is their neighbor to the southeast, what did they do when the Babylonians were murdering the Jews and setting fire to the temple? Go Now turn with me to Psalm 137. This one's important. Psalm 137, verses 7 to 9. You're going to want to read this one. I think we might have mentioned it last week, but this will give you something to talk to your friends about at the water cooler on Monday or the coffee pot in the morning. Psalm 137, verses 7 9. Remember, O Lord, the children of Edom in the day of Jerusalem, who said, Raise it, raise it, even to the foundation thereof. O daughter of Babylon, who art to be destroyed, happy shall he be that rewardeth thee as thou hast served us. Listen to this. Happy shall he be that taketh and dasheth thy little ones against the stones. The Bible says that when the nation of Babylon surrounded Jerusalem and broke down the walls and burned the city to the ground and destroyed the temple and were murdering the people, that the Edomites were cheering to destroy the city and to murder their children. So, Edom is now getting a prophecy from Obadiah that your day is due. Now it's your turn. Joe? Yeah. How it's going to happen and what for. You know what's funny is that a lot of people write off the promise of God because the penalty and the destruction doesn't happen immediately. And therefore they're like, ah, that God's not serious about that. That's not how it works. But remember, we've seen that happen again and again. When we went through the book of Nahum and we went through, okay, the penalty of the Assyrians, it didn't happen instantly. Okay, because God had a timeline. Did you have a question? Oh, okay, sorry. Okay, did I ever tell you guys about, uh, does anyone know who Rudolf Hess is? He was a Nazi. Does anyone know his job? He was the head of the SS. Okay, so listen to this. Now, you guys can write this off, but I'm going to tell you a quick story. During World War II, the Nazis came in and invaded Poland, and they built walls up around some portions of town, these ghettos, and they shoveled all the Jews into them. And they said, you got to live in here now. And they put up barbed wire, and they set up machine guns. And if any Jew tried to leave that area, they just mowed them down. After 
World War II. The Germans, many of them faced charges of war crimes. And some of them were executed. Others were sent to prison. And then what happened to Germany? It was split up. And the Russians got a hold of one part. And what did they do with that one part? They set up a wall and they set up barbed wire and they pointed machine guns at the people. And they said, none of you are leaving. And anyone that tried to get past that wall was gunned down. Rudolf Hess was the last surviving member of the SS. And he was in prison. And he finally committed suicide and died in his 90s. And you want to know what happened the next year? Berlin Wall came down. The penalty was over. That nation that tortured Israel and the Jews, right? Nazi Germany. They had the exact same thing happen to them that they did until the last surviving membership of the leader, or sorry, the last surviving member of the leadership of the SS died. And then the wall came down. You could write it off as coincidence, but it's a heck of a coincidence. Okay, last point, and we're going to be done. Verse 13. Thou shouldest not have entered into the gate of my people in the day of their calamity. The Edomites moved into Jerusalem and looted the city. So again, they took advantage of the misfortune of Israel and robbed her. And the Babylonians took away the Israelites to Babylon. So Daniel was taken away, and Ezekiel was taken away, and, and all the Jews were taken away. And, and don't get me wrong, lots of them were just murdered. When they were all taken away, Edom said, oh, city's empty. And they moved in and they looted the city when the Jews left. So now, we as Christians today must never take advantage of those who are less fortunate. We are commanded to do the very opposite. We are commanded to take care of widows and orphans. We are to be generous to the poor. Okay, We are to support those with a broken heart. In Psalm 34, 18, we read, The Lord is nigh unto them that are of a broken heart. Do you know that God can be found next to those with a broken heart? That's what the Bible says. When someone is going through a hard time, you don't tell them how they failed. You ask them how you can be a help. We don't want to be like Job's friends. Yeah. Okay. The Edomites had a chance to be a good neighbor. When Israel's house burned down, they didn't offer them a place to spend the night. Instead, they rummaged through the remains. The book of Obadiah is a great lesson. It is a lesson on how not to be a neighbor, how not to be a friend or family member. Okay, in verse 14, the last one, and we're done. Betrayal. Some of the Jews tried to escape Jerusalem and protect their families, and the Bible says that the Edomites blocked the way. They even helped capture those who did escape, and they returned them to the Babylonians. Out with our skins. The Edomites wouldn't let them through. So, Joe, that's a good question. I was just talking with a friend of mine about that. So, personally, I don't know if I can say that the Edomites were totally wiped out yet or if that is a prophecy still to come. Now, and the problem is there are not real clear lines in my mind as to who we can identify as Edomites and not. Okay, now, after... 
the Jews were taken away to Babylon, the Edomites moved up into Israel and they made Hebron their capital, which is like 19 miles south of Jerusalem. So even though the Babylonians destroyed Jerusalem, they left Hebron untouched. So they moved in, they made Hebron their capital. And if you look on Roman maps, in the southern portion of Israel is a nation called Idumea. And that is the Greek word for Edomites. So then what we find is when the uh, Romans came through and they started to uh, subjugate the nation of Israel, they took some Idumeans and made them rulers over Israel. And that family was named the Herods. Now, there's a little bit of history in between these two times. So this happens in 586, right? Now, about 300 years later, we have the Maccabean Revolt. So after the Greeks, and forgive me, I'm getting in the weeds here. After Alexander the Great, okay, Alexander the Great was on his deathbed. What were his last words? Okay, they said, what do we do with your kingdom? Does anyone know his answer? So that's what they did. He said, give it to the strong. So they took his four generals and they divided up his kingdom, all of Greece. So then you have an area that was taken over and ruled. And you have this really bad guy named Antiochus Epiphanes. And he comes in and subjugates the Jews and tells them, if you get circumcised, it's a capital crime. We're going to kill you. If you take, if you keep the Sabbath day, we're going to kill you. If you, I mean, just down the line. So then there's a revolt, the Maccabean revolt. They take back the temple. They have the Hanukkah miracle of the lighting of the, uh, the lamps. And then what happens is shortly after that, you have a Jewish king who forces all the Idumeans to convert to Judaism or die. Okay, so he like goes to the other end of the spectrum and you have this Jewish king that's like all of you guys are now going to be Jews or else you're dead. So what did they do? Some of the Idumeans said we're leaving the country. We don't want to be a part of this. And lots of them said, "Okay, we have to convert. So then what you have is you have this group who. Rightfully so does not like the Jews. I mean, they have a good reason not to like them after what they made them do. But the Romans come in and they take over and they're like, we need to put a king in charge of you guys who's going to play ball. So they take an Idumean who looks Jewish and let's face it, is a family acquaintance of the Jews, right? They're both from the same family tree. And they said, you guys are going to be in charge. And the name of that family was Herod. So that's where the Idumeans ended up. Whether now, so some of what you read is that when the Herods died off, okay, that was the end of the Edomites, the Idumeans. I honestly, I don't know if that's the case or if I'd stand on that one. But if anyone's heard anything better, I'd love to hear it. Okay, Joe, would you be so kind as to close us in a word of prayer?